I'm just naturally cautious in interviews. Hi, everybody. It's Toby Miller here. Welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. And I'm in Las Lupitas in Coyoacan in Mexico City. And I'm here with my friend, Anne-Marie O'Connor. Anne-Marie, how are you? I'm very well today. Thank you for having me. Excellent. It's good to see you. And tell me, what are you up to here in Mexico? In Mexico City, I've been finishing a book um, about a Nazi art theft <laughs> called The Lady in Gold for Knopf. Uh, I've also been writing for the Washington Post about the drug war in Mexico City. Well, can we start with the book, which was really my alibi for inveigling you to come uh, here to the pod and join us. And that's really what I'd, what I'd love to begin with. So it's fantastic the book is coming out with Knopf, a major publisher, trade press and all of that. Tell us a little bit, if you could, about the book. What does it do? I mean, you've given us the eight words or less version, but if you could expand it a little. What's the Nazi theft? What's the art? What's it all about? Well, the book is about one of the first cases of a major art collection stolen by the Nazis that was returned to its heirs. Mm -hmm. In the past, uh, most of these paintings stayed in museums. It's a recent thing that they're being restituted to the heirs of the owners. Um, so this was a very important milestone, this particular case. My involvement with it began in 2001 when I was reading a column by the Los Angeles columnist Bob Shear mm -hmm. uh, in the West Side Weekly. And he had a short column about an elderly woman, I remember her being about 89, Maria Altman, who was trying to get back a painting of her aunt that had been stolen by the Nazis and was hanging on the walls of the National Gallery in Austria, along with at least four other paintings that had belonged to the family. Um, it was a portrait. It was Klimt's most famous painting. Uh, after, the, after this case, it became more famous than The Kiss. Uh, it was one of his gold portraits. Uh, it was just a woman, a Viennese woman, who had a certain look of restlessness and rebelliousness, like the women of her social circle in Vienna in 1907 when this painting was completed. And I looked at the painting because I had seen it, obviously, or at least reproductions. And I thought, oh my god, that painting. In those days, those cases never won. You heard about them all the time. Right. Uh, there, were, there was a large Jewish community in uh, Los Angeles, and uh, some, of their, uh, some of the people who had fled fascism in their family had large art collections. And many of them were hanging on in public view in art museums, or were in collectors' homes where people knew where they were. And uh, it was really kind of an outrage to them because not only did they have to escape, uh, they knew what would have happened to them had they stayed uh, in Austria. They would have been deported to concentration camps and murdered. But they had to live with this outrage of seeing their art hung in public um, uh, for the rest of their lives. Uh, Maria Altman, the woman, was listed in the telephone directory, so I called 411. And she and I called her number, and she answered. And she was a very warm woman. Uh, even over the telephone, she's my darling, my love. Please come over at once. So I went over to her house, and she started to tell me this incredibly complicated story that involved every one from Hedy Lamar and Billy Wilder to Felix Sultan, who wrote Bambi. But in this case, he had written an erotic novel at the turn of the century, and he was a friend of their family. And we now know that Hedy Lamar invented Wi-Fi. Right, that's right. <laughs> but she was um, she was a protege of Max Reinhardt, uh -huh. who um, and she was also a young debutante with Maria together. Um, so I thought... A bit like ourselves here in Mexico. Really. Exactly. Making our debut. But so it was an amazing story. And I thought, could all of these people really be involved with this painting. painting and this family? Amazing. Um, but I didn't think they would win. 
in fact, I was certain they wouldn't because no one ever did. And there were issues of jurisdiction. jurisdiction. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, there were a lot of legal obstacles. And also, I thought, what lawyer would have the time um, that they could afford? Because they didn't have a lot of money. They were middle class. Um, it just seemed really expensive. And Maria said, oh, my lawyer is Randy, Randy. I've known him since he was in diapers. As if she was explaining her nephew's science project. <laughs> So I went to go see Randy. Randy was the um, great nephew of her best friend. How would that work? He was the grandson of Arnold Schoenberg. Um, the composer who'd come to LA in the 30s. I guess he was the grandson also of Eric Zeisel. Eric Zeisel's wife was Maria's best friend. Uh, he was the grandson of composers on both sides. So. Uh, they knew each other. They obviously talked to each other a lot. In fact, he he volunteered to take on the case when he when she called looking for his mother at his <laughs> law office, and he became Which very. Which is where your mother would be normally. She'd well, be she was in office. Vienna, but he she couldn't find him. Maria couldn't <laughs> find him, so she called Randall and said, "Where is Barbara? I can't find her." He said, "My mother's in Vienna." She told him about the case, and he took it. So I went to go see him. He's this very young lawyer. Uh, he looked like he just graduated from college, but in those days he would have been 31 or 32. Um, he didn't so much talk about the case as rant and rave about it. And he pulled out of these books and photographs uh, and described all the characters, which were a lot of characters. A son of Klimt, who was a, who was a propaganda uh, filmmaker for the Nazis, all these different people. It was like, it was like the cast of a Russian novel. And I said to um, my editors afterwards, um, I don't think this case is really going to go anywhere, but it would make a great magazine article. And your editors were at the LA Times? This was at the Los Angeles Times. Uh, and the magazine editor agreed. She thought it was an amazing story. Um, we were careful in the story that ran to sort of point out all the legal obstacles, jurisdiction, um, the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, which uh, protects sovereign foreign nations from lawsuit, most lawsuits in the United States, um, and it tends to be ruled uh, protectively by U.S. courts. Um, so, but. You know, if if any of these if any of these legal obstacles bothered Randall, he just waved them away dismissively. Oh yeah, that. So he was really committed. He was committed, and he was trying. He was going into legal territory that really no one had ever gone into. This was something completely new. Um, he was making a frontal attack. He wasn't going to these museums and trying to delicately negotiate the return of these paintings because Maria had already done this and they'd pretty much blown her off. And a lot of people had done this. A lot of people had gone to museums and said, listen, you might not know this, but this painting belonged to my grandfather. He fled or was murdered uh, and we'd really like it back. Um, what do you say? And the museums didn't answer their phone calls, refused to meet with them. If they did meet with them, they often denied the conversations that took place. And they never tried to find a solution. And Maria had actually by then gone in 1999 to Vienna. And she had met with uh, some of the cultural people. And I remember that someone told me, who was there at that time and saw her speak, someone told me, I went to the head of this museum and told him, if I were you, I would give her $10 million and uh, have her sign a piece of paper and dedicate the Maria Zimmer, the Maria Altman Zimmer um, in the museum for these paintings. If I were you, I would deal with it. But they thought they didn't have to in those days in Europe, not just in Vienna. And so now Randall was going to try to do it in a direct way through a lawsuit, which no one had really tried.
it's, it's remarkable the story of the way in which so many art museums, and not just in terms of the Holocaust, but in other areas too, have adopted completely imperialistic attitudes to the cultural and aesthetic items that they hold. Quite remarkable, one could think of the British Museum and the Elgin Marbles from Greece, um, countless other examples of works looted you know, from peoples who have been dispossessed, whose lands and lives have been disrupted and so on, and that then, in a sense, happily move on to become this quasi-public property in another place. So, Well, I think antiquity theft is another issue that has come to the forefront in the last 10 years. I think one of the reasons that both restitution and antiquity theft are becoming huge issues is because the world is now a smaller place. A much smaller place now even than 10 years ago with the internet. Everyone is interlinked. I think a lot of these cases would have been resolved sooner had the web been a stronger force. At this point it has grown to the point where everyone knows everything about things around the world, even in small villages in Mexico. And also UNESCO has produced a series of quite robust conventions on cultural property. But the UNESCO has been involved in this issue for a long time. And they've had uh, a spokeswoman, Melina Mercuri, who's one of the first spokeswomen. This is an issue that has been out there yeah. since I became a journalist. But it was voiced in conferences, in more formal settings, in conversations, and sometimes in the newspaper. But it was limited by the, by the limitations of the media. Right. And now it's not. That there are multiple ways for people to get their message across. And one of the things that Randall Schoenberg did in this case was his partner in Vienna, Stefan Gulner, set up a website. And it's an amazing website. It's still up now um, about the case. It has all the documents, all the correspondence, all the letters, uh, all the legal briefs, and all the material that if any scholar wanted to uh, write about this, they could go in and look up the details of the case. Wonderful. It's all available there online. But not only was it available to journalists, it was available to legal scholars throughout the world who could look at the material and make their own determinations. Right. And that's what started happening in this case. It started to get a buzz in the legal area because if you looked at the bare bones of the case of what actually happened when the paintings were acquired by the museum uh, in the 1940s, uh, it's very clear that they were acquired through deception and as a result of a quid pro quo of exchanging, um, of allowing the family to take away some property in exchange for them being able to keep the stolen property that they value. Wow. This is really a remarkable tale. So what year are you doing all of this? You've, you've read Bob Shear's piece. So when do you start your quest for this story? So uh, I did it um, for the book very much the way I did it in the magazine article. I started um, 100 years ago in the case of the book in 1898 with Adele, Blo Adele Blochbauer, uh, the young woman who was painted in this painting by Gustav Klimt. She was a very interesting woman. She wanted to get an education. Uh, in those days, university education had just begun to be available to young women. And it was very difficult, and they only allowed a handful in who were hazed very much. Right. The medical school was finally cajoled into allowing one woman in to deal with women in the um, Bosnian territories that were Muslim. and. Uh, only after there was a major scandal involving a doctor in an all-girls high school in Vienna, uh, who was a man. So uh, some friends of Adele's family were able to persuade the medical school that they should allow, in this case they allowed one woman in who was terribly hazed. That woman would become Adele's personal doctor. Uh, so she was part of this group of pioneers in those days who wanted to make an impact. They wanted more. Their society wanted them to be less. Um, they were constrained by a lot of cultural prejudices. 
involving women in hysteria, uh, which Freud was involved in that theory, and many others. Um, so they also were hobbled by social prejudice. Um, but they were looking for a greater identity and a greater role in their societies. So she was one of these women from a very young age. She was not like her sister, who was a very conventional debutante. And many of these women who were wealthy ended up being painted by Klimt because conventional families, particularly aristocratic Catholic families, did not want Klimt near their daughters. So that this becomes part of modernism, the avant-garde decadence. Um, and it's also part of the way in which the industrialization and urbanization of Western Europe provided some additional opportunities for women uh, of a certain class, uh, in part, to transcend their conventional backgrounds and to get a lift out of the norms of patriarchal control, at least in a relative sense, right? So Clint becomes a threat to this, these families and their control over their daughters. Well, What, what is it about Clint that is a problem? <laughs> I think uh, one of the problems with him was he was seen in those days as avant-garde. He made erotic drawings that shocked even Adele's sister Teresa, the more conventional of the two. Um, but I think that the biggest problem was that he had a, he was very attractive to women and he had a, a very notorious reputation as a seducer. Um, Adele's best friend was Alma Mahler. And Alma Mahler, uh, in her late teens, was in love with Gustav Klimt. Um, he went on family vacations with them. And uh, he was the first person she made out with or had any kind of contact, passionate contact with as a man. Um, whatever happened there, eventually the family wouldn't let uh, he, Gustav Klimt near Alma Mahler because they were afraid it would compromise her reputation that she would uh, have a premarital relationship with him um, and ruin her chances of marriage. And I think that that was one of the biggest problems, particularly with the aristocratic families who didn't even want a whiff of disrespect or disrepute near their daughters. So to have someone like Klimt alone with them in a painting studio uh, long enough to make a portrait, which could take a really long time, was something that they weren't interested in at all. The Jewish families were friends and patrons of Clint. Um, their daughters had a lot more latitude in their uh, behavior. Um, they, most of the women who were painted by him in those days were married, but some of the unmarried girls also, who were also painted by uh, him as a result of friendship with their father, and nothing, nothing bad resulted from it. But. Um, but that was a problem for a lot of parents who were worried about the reputation. In the case of the Jewish families, they were more avant-garde. Um, they weren't worried about how things would look because there's no real evidence that he tried to seduce many of these women. Um, a lot of his seductions were not the models necessarily. But um, I think they were more, the aristocratic families were more worried about how things would look. Would look. Yes. Whereas I think the Jewish families felt like getting a, a portrait by Klimt was like having a, a Warhol portrait. It was hugely prestigious. And they wanted their wives and daughters to be painted by him. Absolutely fascinating. And he had a very distinctive style. And even though he was part of the avant garde, he was interested in portraiture and not something that's always associated with avant-garde art movements. So on the one hand, you get the cultural cachet of his being a leading artist at this high moment of Northern European modernism. And on the other, you get a sense of an entree to your family being part of the heritage of portraiture because he is painting your wives and daughters. So uh, you can see why the folks who are looking for cultural cachet and social entree, um, he's not a bad option. Well, um, he had a particularly symbiotic relationship with Jewish families because at this time, 
he was trying to push the boundaries of art in Vienna, and Vienna was very high in state. And he ended up, uh, he made paintings for the university ceilings, the famous faculty paintings, that were very experimental and uh, had involved a lot of nudity and mortality and disturbing issues to people at that time. Uh, one of the paintings was philosophy. Uh, they had expected um, to see um, maybe some great philosophers in togas, <laughs> but not, you know, nude women who were who were questioning the meaning of life and our purpose on earth and great existential issues um, of what does it matter because we're all going to die anyway. Uh, this was not what they wanted at all. So at this point in his career, he had been pushed out of official commissions, which or actually really he had left, um, which he was tired of anyway. And the people who were his bridge to the future were these very well-to-do Jewish families who were very cultured. They were unfazed by new ideas, by Freud, by all of the thinkers of that time, by new music, by Arnold Schoenberg, who at that time his music was considered so risque that there were fist fights at his concerts. So this was a milieu that was very important to the making of modernism in Vienna at that time. Um, so they became kind of his new... Patrons, his new way. patrons, yeah. yes, they were his patrons. Yeah. Um, and for them, um, they were great art collectors. They were great philanthropists. They funded homeless shelters, uh, including the one where Hitler lived. Uh, they paid for a lot of the social services, which at that time didn't exist. They didn't help people with TB or a lot of communicable illnesses. So a lot of these charitable services were paid for by the Jewish families who were very newly arrived in most cases. With the exception of the Rothschilds and a few others, they were very new. Um, and they were very philanthropic. So this was part of their embrace of their in engagement in society, which they had been denied to them just a few decades before. Sure. And I think that what's fascinating, of course, when we scoot forward a while, you've already mentioned Hitler and we think about the reaction that the Nazis had to the avant-garde, which, along with art criticism, they very much associated with the Jews, and they associated with denationalizing tendencies in culture. Uh, their view of art was, as you know, that it should be for the glory of the nation and should be representational art in a very straightforward way. So they really hated modernism, they hated art theory. If you read uh, Mein Kampf, the Hitler book, there are obsessive denunciations of the artistic avant-garde, less so the literary avant-garde, precisely because it was felt that this historic task of laying down the history and the glory of the people had been, in a sense, discharged uh, in favor of ideas that were threatening because of their very lack of representationalism. Now, what's interesting about Klimt is that, of course, on the one hand, he is doing representational art. You can sort of tell who these people are when you look at the portraits. On the other hand, everything is, in a sense, distorted or refracted through uh, his cultural pictorial lens in a way that problematizes, for instance, the idea that we see this face, we know this person, and the entire work of art is simply a representation of what is in front of us, and instead makes his very idiosyncratic way of interpreting things a core part of the art. So it is interesting that he was supported by Jewish folks who felt as though they were outsiders. It's interesting that he was in trouble for failing to represent a national institutions in an appropriate way, because I think that you can see 15 or so years later exactly those issues very clearly outlined by Hitler and his followers that of course then apply in many ways during the war as well, during the, the Nazi regime from 33 on in terms of their national cultural policies, 
And needless to say, their own collecting practices, which were quite interesting because, as you know, they gave one another artworks, the, the major leaders, uh, and were very involved in the art market in addition to benefiting from theft. So anyway, there's my brief history of the avant-garde's relationship to National Socialist well, Klimt was culture. Klimt was problematic on a number of levels. First of all, even though he was an excellent draftsman and loved realism to the point of he painted from photographs, so a lot of the realism was kind of early photorealism in a way. Uh, the face that floats in the portrait of Adele Bloch-Bauer uh, is a very realistic one. It almost looks like a photograph. Um, but the women in Klimt's paintings um, were painted differently than a lot of portraits before then. First of all, he's credited to some degree by, with inventing the vamp that would later show up in silent films. Uh, these women had looks on their faces that were clearly sexual. Uh, in some cases, they were aroused. Uh, they were not, it, this was not Sergeant Singer or even Cezanne, although they, they were huge influences on him. Second of all, the men in their lives were not evident. Uh, they were, portraits in those days of women were basically to signal the social status of the men who paid for them. Uh, in this case, the men were nowhere present or evidence of their existence. It was the wo women and their particular psychology, which was not always idealized. Sometimes they had cigarette-stained teeth. Sometimes they had, they were not portrayed in an idealized manner. Now, Hitler, who was a failed artist at the time this painting was being made, in Vienna in 1907, who uh, was rejected from the Art Academy right across the street of what would eventually be Adele Blockbauer's house um, and the Schillerplatz, um, Hitler believed that art should be idealized. His art wasn't very good. It was mostly public buildings. He was afraid of emotions and strong color. Um, he was afraid of things that signaled strong impulses. His art was very wooden, very staid. But the art he liked was things like the Biedermeyer School, which was sort of beer-swilling, uh, bosomy maidens in, you know, in the Vienna woods, whatever. And he hated modernism. He hated Kokoschka, a protege of Klimt. Um, he called this kind of art uh, degenerate art. Um, they had a famous art exhibit under the Nazi regime of degenerate art. Well, ironic. It's interesting because um, at the turn of the century, the term degenerate was first applied to women. It was it was females, female emancipationists. They were called having a degenerate women's emancipation fit, and they were degenerate women, women who wanted more rights. Uh, the term was spreading to artists even then, um, but it was mostly applied to women at first. Then some of the artists that were emerging. Um, at that time, there was a lot of freedom for artists in places like Paris. They were accommodating Picasso and all these other artists, and they were accommodating new ways of viewing the world. This was not the case in Vienna. Um, it was much more difficult. So Hitler, uh, when he uh, failed in Vienna and went back and made a career in anti-Semitic politics that he learned in Vienna, um, in 1937, there was the the widower of the woman in the painting, Adele, Ferdinand. Ferdinand Blochbauer decided to have a, a, a retrospective of Kokoschko's works. Um, this was in Vienna, and he paid for it. Uh, Kokoschka by then had a huge body of work. Uh, he was the kind of art that Hitler had hated. He was, a, he was admitted to uh, art school the year Hitler was rejected. Um, he had a lot of strikes against him, and Hitler hated him. Uh, but and he was successful, whereas Hitler was not successful as an artist. Both, though, by then he was successful as a politician. So this art show opened in Vienna, and it was precisely at that time that Hitler started to rail against degenerate art. Um, they started to take the art out of all these museums. <laughs> Officials specifically criticized uh, the 
art show in Vienna of Kokoschka, and they started pulling Kokoschka paintings off the wall. In Germany, along with other paintings, Picasso, others, um, and I think eventually they pulled down 400 Kokoschkas. But there was a relationship between that art show and, and the trigger of that movement. And in Berlin, they had a, and they had a their famous degenerate art show at that time. And then they had an, an alternate show of approved art that represented Germanic culture, not degenerate culture or Jewish culture. So that was in 1937 um, when the family started to become aware of how serious things were becoming through Ferdinand Bluchbauer's art show. How fascinating. So in, in many ways, this painting, its subject and its subject's family are crucibles of the horror of Nazi cultural policy uh, and of course also are indices of the, the horror of Nazi policies and programs more generally, more broadly. So what had happened to Adela? You said that she died before the war. Adele Blockbauer died at the age of 43 in 1925. By then she was a deeply involved in Red Vienna. Uh, she was involved in socialism. Um, she was involved in the effort to win public health services for the poor Viennese and for charity programs in general. Uh, she, among other things, she willed she willed some of her, what she left behind, her money to a home for poor children and a workers' library. She willed all her books, books to a workers' library uh, to either sell or read as they saw fit. And um, so at this point, she um, was still involved in the culture wars, but on another front, whereas she was trying to get their paintings into the National Art Museum. At that time, Klimt's work was still very new there. Uh, it was still very staid and had the old taste and specialized in things like the Baroque. But uh, there was a very innovative new director who was a friend of all the new artists. He was a very good friend of Chile, who painted a portrait of him. And he began to collect all their work for the museum and try to make a place for them in the Academy of Art in Austria. And she was deeply involved in this at the time that she passed away, very suddenly, possibly of meningitis, but she was not autopsied or really diagnosed. There were um, perhaps five speculative diagnoses, but people think it was probably meningitis. Um, but she suddenly fell into a coma and died. Uh, so. That was the end um, of, of her involvement in all these things. Her husband, who was much more conventional than her and collected porcelain rather than modern art, uh, between then and 1937 became uh, very involved with the modernists, involved enough to have his portrait painted by Kokoschka and to sponsor this art show. That's fascinating. So he went through a metamorphosis. During all this time, from 1907 to 1937, who has the painting? Where is it? The portrait of a day. The painting was at his home, their home, on Elisabethstrasse. In her will, she stipulated that their Klimt paintings would go to the National Art Museum um, after his death. In other words, he would enjoy them in his lifetime. He decided to, he, he became her heir, so uh, he decided to allow one of the paintings to be exhibited there before he died. So one of the paintings was there, uh, a, a view of the Kammer Castle on the Attersee. Uh, outside of Zuwalchen, Austria, a very beautiful Habsburg castle, um, near the Villa Paulik where Klimt's, uh, it was owned by the family of Klimt's girlfriend, uh, and where he often painted. So the portrait of Adele was still in the house, hanging oh. in their home. And then the Anschluss happens, 1938, 
and there is this great fantasy unification of Austria and Germany and the beginning of what we now understand as the inevitable lead into the Second World War. And very soon the Nazis are uh, dominating and oppressing the lives of ordinary people in Vienna and in other parts of Austria, right? So what happens to the painting at that point? Well, the family, like many people in Vienna, was not prepared for the Anschluss and what it meant. They viewed the terrible events in Germany somewhat from a distance with a lot of concern, but they didn't feel like they were personally threatened. Uh, when Hitler declared the Anschluss, they were having a quartet at their house playing music, and everyone was together with all their friends. They did this on Friday nights, and they all debated what to do, whether to leave. Um, a few days before the Anschluss, Ferdinand, Adele's widower, had put some of his business into a Swiss trust. So he had the prescience, but it wasn't long before, it was just a few days. Uh, the rest of them, uh, in some cases left, in most cases, or in many cases, they stayed. They stayed in Vienna to try to figure out what to do. Um, but the Gestapo, took over Ferdinand's house with all its art collection in it. And they had a meeting after the Anschluss in which museum directors came and chose which pieces of art that they would like to uh, take to their museums under the gaze of a Gestapo officer. They chose some for the Hitler's Führer Museum. They chose some as personal gifts to Goring and other uh, Nazi Reichsmarshals that they wished to flatter. Um, Klimt was not particularly coveted in those days because most of his paintings were of Jewish women and he was not one of the more traditional artists like Waldmuller who they loved. Uh, he was still considered a little risque but by the Germans certainly. But the Austrians uh, of, and they did not choose his, his portrait of Adele right away. But in 1941, uh, they cut a deal to get the portrait of Adele, the gold portrait, into the Belvedere, the National Museum. And it was taken over there and sent over by a lawyer, Eric Fuhrer, who was dividing up the artwork and who was had control, had control over Jewish estates um, of many Jewish families who had art collections. And of people like um, like Johann Strauss's stepdaughter, uh, he had been assigned to the estates of wealthy Jews. He cut a deal to send this painting to the museum, and it arrived with a letter saying, "Heil Hitler." Wow! Quite remarkable. Quite remarkable. So the art is expropriated from the family's home. Um, under the selection of a local expert who is himself deeply implicated with the Nazi regime. And it's somewhat unusual in that Klimt's work, because of the way he painted and because of the identity of some of the women that he was depicting, was not actually very prized within this canon. But in this case, it was. Well, so off goes the picture. For a lot of reasons. He was also considered a philo-Semite. Uh, and they had less flattering ways to say that in those days. Um, that was known to a lot of people at that particular time. Now, when the... It always seemed very difficult to me to believe that the Austrians did not know when this case began that the painting had been stolen. And this is why. There's a book written and published in 1942 by Emil Perchon, who was an old friend of Klimt's, a very good friend of his from the turn of the century. Mm -hmm. By now, 
Emil Perchon's son had joined the Nazi party, and Emil Perchon was designing um, floats for the Vienna um, carnival. And one of these floats was degenerate artists. He was designing floats to flatter the regime. Now, Emil Perchon had once been a very uh, interesting designer. He was one of the most important uh, designers in German theater and film and television in the early days. He was a genius. Why he did this, I have no idea. But during this time, he published this book in 1942 called Klimt, an Artist in Vienna. And in this book, they have a, a reproduction of the portrait of Adele Blochbauer, which he calls Dame in Gold, the Lady in Gold, because it would have been um, it would have been un unacceptable to say her name at that time because it was a very prominent Jewish family that had just been driven out. So now it was being adopted as patrimony. So you see... So you see it making its transition to patrimony here. But also there's a very detailed... Um, a very detailed history of the acquisition of this painting and what it means to Austria and this beautiful woman like um, like a very earthly goddess like a Salome in flames sensual he had a he actually wrote something very beautiful for this book about the painting unfortunately it was published in uh, during Nazi uh, Germany and he he put in a lot of the language of the time like Heil Heroes Klimt, Heil Klimt the Hero, Heil Klimt. It was a very strange book, but it's the first public record that I can find of this um, acquisition that was available to all Viennese. And when I found that book, which is available in obscure libraries, there weren't too many printed, uh, I believe it's in the Getty Library, uh, it seemed to me proof that everyone pretty much knew because I asked the Belvedere, uh, this is the portrait of Adele Block Bauer, and they said, well, yeah, it is. We can confirm that it is. So it began making its transition at that time. Now, um, the crucial moment for this was in 1943, because Baldur von Schirach was on the outs with Hitler. Hitler had personally closed down an art show of young artists that Baldur von Schirach had uh, created in Vienna. And Hitler took one look at the art show and said, this is degenerate art, what are you doing? So Baldur von Schirach was under a cloud, and he was a real fawner. He was the, a very young head of the Hitler Youth. Um, he wrote poetry to my Fuhrer, gazing under the stars. Um, he was a really a, sort of a foppish uh, governor, Nazi governor of Vienna. So Baldur von Schirach got the idea to show that Vienna was a cultural force as well. Uh, because at that point, all, Germany was taking the lead in what was German culture, German taste, German art. So Baldur von Schirach, uh decided to make an art show in 1943 of the works of Klimt, of Gustav Klimt. It was the most comprehensive show uh, that was ever made of Gustav Klimt's work, and it could never be, there can never be a show that comprehensive ever again. It would be impossible. Some of the works were destroyed. There are a lot of reasons. but So he had the biggest art show ever of Gustav Klimt. It had the faculty paintings, all of the risque paintings. It had all of the portraits. But uh, it, there was a problem with the portraits because even though the Germans were apparently quite willing to accept them as icons of the Viennese society ladies that they had been told about all their lives, these sophisticated, glamorous women, um, the portraits were of Jewish women. So all of the portraits that were in, in that exhibit had different names. Uh, you know, women, woman with Chinese wallpaper, woman with, you know, very descriptive. Surpassing, basically. They were anonymous. They were rendered anonymously. Yeah. Adele's name in that particular exhibit, I think, might have, it was something like woman with a background of gold. Or woman, and in other, another exhibit, it was woman with a golden robe. They had the same kind of anonymous descriptor of her, mm -hmm. but she was prominent in that show. Right. So by that, and that was acceptable. This was accepted. It wasn't considered degenerate. So Klimt also made a, a bit of an evolution because 
one of his best friends, Karl Moll, a brilliant painter from the turn of the century, had by now become a Nazi. And he was at the show. So now he was a Nazi endorsing Klimt. Klimt could be read uh, as an ubermensch, as like a very masculine man. He was known to have had many lovers, illegitimate children. He was very handsome, very physically powerful. So now, for the purposes of this show, he was a German ubermensch. And even one of his most uh, avant-garde paintings, the Beethoven Frieze, one panel had a name. It, ha it had several names in its lifetime given to it by Klimt. He kept changing the names. But one of the names was um, My Kingdom is Not of This World. Which in German, My Reich is Not of This World. It's actually a quote from Jesus, from the Bible. But um, in this show, they chose the name My Reich is Not of This World. And that was perfect. It was very serendipitous for that time. Because he was referencing the Reich. So they weren't short of a lot of political correctness, as it were, in terms of wanting to rename, renominate things that didn't fit their categories of decency and sociability and so forth. Well, I don't think they could have gotten away with this in Germany. <laughs> because it would have been too close to home and everyone would have known. But this was Vienna. It was far away. The German Nazi leaders weren't all that familiar. Right. Walter von Chirac was Viennese. Uh, he was free to make up things as he went along, which they were totally comfortable to do. I mean, the race laws prohibited physical contact uh, at that point between Gentiles and Jews, but there was Jewish women were raped all the time. So they were always making things up as they went along. Um, they were not sticklers. As long as they could sort of get away with it in public propaganda, because propaganda was very big, they could, and they did in this case. Klimt became... Right. A hero of the Third Reich. So, Henry O'Connor, we've got about ten minutes left, uh, and we've, we've, we've covered almost 40 years of the life of the painting, but your story goes a lot further forward than that. Is it possible in, in about 10 minutes for us to cover the rest of the story, however briefly? So, what happens to the painting after the war? And how the family gets disarticulated and then rearticulated to, to this work of art? Well, after the war, um, an attorney who was a very good friend of the family, Gustav Rinish, who helped many members of the family escape, who was very dedicated to them and was in love with one of the nieces of the woman in the painting, Maria Altman, uh, he, who he would have liked to have married. Um, he's not Jewish. He wasn't Jewish, so he's, he was Catholic. He's in a position to help Jewish families. But in those days, Catholic social life and Jewish social life of the elite was very intermingled. Um, Jewish families married titled people from Catholic families uh, before the war. and. He would have liked to have married Maria. He socialized with her family. The Blockbauers were very prominent socially. Actors, painters, authors came over to their parties. Um, he was in love with Maria. Um, Maria married someone else, and he helped her. He helped them escape, uh, along with other members of her family. He actually drove the mother of her sister-in-law to the border the day before the invasion of Poland and got her across the border physically. Um, so he was someone who had been very dedicated to helping pe helping them all get out now that they were, uh, and he lamented this very much. He kept a memoir of about 300 pages of this time during the war and he describes it in great detail. He eventually was forced to join up in the German army and he became a, a translator at the Stalag 17 of Billy Wilder. But, um, uh, and it was very interesting the way they had escaped. In those days, there was a lot of gay culture in Vienna. And a lot of gay men came from all over Europe to marry Jewish women and help them get out. And in some cases, they did demand money or something, an operation for cancer, whatever. But in many cases, they didn't. So Rinish was involved in some of this, too, in like helping connect people. But so anyway, after the war. After the war, the family is spread all over the world. 
And they asked Rinish for help getting some of their things back. And Rinish went to the Austrian authorities, and the Austrian authorities said, first they said, get a lawyer and prepare for a lawsuit about the paintings. Because they wanted to, they were conspiring to keep the paintings. So the Austrian museum directors told Rinish, and this was very common in those days, it happened to the Rothschilds and all the other families, we'll give you a quarter of the furniture stolen during the war from their houses or whatever and a few of these paintings that really weren't significant at all. If you let us keep the clips. Now, Maria Altman and all of her family were spread all over the world. They had no way of signing off on this deal. They didn't have email in those days. It wasn't that easy to communicate uh, everybody together. Um, but at any rate, he wrote a letter to Maria's brother, who's in Canada, saying, uh, well, they say that we are going, that they'll give us this, and they seem very well disposed towards us, and they say that, um, that Adele Blockbauer's will gives them these paintings, and so um, we're going to go with this deal. And this is what everyone advised their clients. They were just trying to be realists. They were trying to get something back. These families didn't have money. Uh, they needed their stuff. So uh, Rinish didn't understand that the will of Adele made Ferdinand the sole heir when she died. He could have, they could, he was the owner of the paintings. He could have changed his mind. He had no interest in giving the paintings to Austria at that point. He'd been trying to get them back. Um, when he died, he was still trying to get the paintings back. Uh, he wanted the portraits of his wife. He didn't want to leave them to the place that murdered his friends and family. So he was still alive. He'd gotten out. He died in 1945, but he was he, he was not alive at this point. And this was in 1948. So in 1948, they signed off on the deal. They left the Klimt paintings there. Now, most of the family members had no idea how this worked. Right. They just thought, oh, okay, they belong there. Uh, they had no idea of what had really happened. And this was also true in the case of the Rothschilds and and many other of these cases. So, or they just resigned themselves to it. So then in 1998, Maria uh, heard that an Austrian journalist had written in great detail about how these paintings were stolen. And the Austrian journalist was Hubertus Czernin, who had also discovered the uh, World War II history of Kurt Waldheim. He was a count, a very handsome investigative journalist, and he was a class trader, a nespismucher, a nest soiler. Um, but he was very. I've never heard that expression before. From a very popular family in Vienna. Right. And yeah, nest soilers—the people who dig up the dirt of the past, which the, in the in in post-war Germany was an operative concept. Uh, yeah. Right. Well, we think about Kurt Waldheim. Some listeners may not know who he was, but. He was an Austrian politician who ran the United Nations for many years and was meant to be a distinguished person, was claimed to have been a member of a Nazi resistance, and then it was disclosed many, many years later that in fact he'd been a very active Nazi. And this is what you're referring to. Right. So this was the specialty of Hubertus Czernin's journalism. He, he tried to address past uh, misdeeds. And now he had turned to art. And he probably knew there was some there, just from word of mouth. But he had out no idea how much there was. And he and another journalist in Vienna, Thomas Trankler, really pulled the lid off of all of this, off the Rothschild case, of all these other cases. Uh, and they started to dig through the archives, which were closed. So, con hielo. So, uh, this news dropped like a bomb. Maria heard about it, I think, from a friend of a friend. Um, and her, her reaction in, in those days was like, well, of course, they stole everything else. Like, of course, they stole our art. And she was outraged. But she didn't know what to do about it. But at that point, uh, Austrian authorities 
started to talk about this publicly and they said, okay, we're going to put together a law that any art that's acquired as a result of a quid pro quo for other property or in other improper ways during the war or in the post-war era when a lot of this took place uh, will have to be given back. But it was still, all these things were decided in a not very transparent way. They looked at the Block Bauer case and decided to return the drawings and the porcelain, but not the paintings, which was sort of like being a little bit pregnant. If the drawings belonged to them, then why didn't the paintings belong? But they were still insisting on the Adele will. So um, at this point, Randall Schoenberg got involved and waged this eight-year legal battle, which went to a federal court in LA, which went to the appeals court um, in San Francisco, and then went to the US Supreme Court. And when he won in the Supreme Court on a very, an, an, one of the legal technicalities that I thought would be an obstacle to him, he won uh, a judgment of the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act that was interpreted to say that there was jurisdiction in this case in US courts. Now, one of the proofs of jurisdiction that Randall brought up was the Austrians were publishing a guidebook in Southern California to the museum that had this painting in it. In other words, they were trafficking commercially with this project, with this product, which I thought was a very novel way to interpret the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, but they bought it and, and his other arguments. And they ruled that the case could proceed in US courts. And at this point, it was very, very difficult for the Austrians not to do something. Because they would have, regardless of whether they could have appealed this for years and delayed, this case was dragging them through the mud. It was bringing up, it was allowing the family to air all their grievances. It was shining a spotlight on Austria's uh, failure to address its past sins. And uh, at this point, they decided to act. They offered to do, judge on a panel. And the panel decided in favor of the family to return the paintings. Wow. And that was in 2006. So the legal case basically started in 1998 and ended with victory for the family in 2006. An absolutely extraordinary story, uh, wonderfully told by you today. Thank you. I've had the good fortune not to read the whole of the book, but to have seen uh, parts of it. It's beautifully written and clearly wonderfully researched. What? Yeah, I did a lot of research in this book, probably too much. <laughs> um, and at the end, they had me do footnotes, which was, I guess was probably a good idea um, for future scholars of this case. I had the great good fortune that many of these people in their late 80s and early 90s were still alive. Yeah. All of Maria's friends um, from Vienna and uh, they helped me to recreate her world. If they had not been alive or if I had just waited a, a little while too long, that would not have been available to me and it would have been a completely different kind of book. But to have Maria and her friends tell me all their stories of those days was really an unbelievable boon for me. So in addition to the story of the painting, you're also evoking the life histories of people who are part of a really extraordinary diaspora. Well, these were really remarkable people. Uh, they were very well read, they were very intellectual, uh, they were very, very witty and charming, famously so. Um, in the book they have their poems, they read poems to each other, they made plays. Uh, I have all the love affairs of them and their friends. Um, is there a was, chart of the love affairs? Like you, a kinship chart of who's sleeping with whom? It would take a lot of space just for Klimt's. <laughs> but uh, it was a very rich world that they inhabited. And to me, th this world of yesterday, this amazing world of yesterday, was one of the richest parts of the book. The legal case to me seemed um, a little subordinate to that in some ways, although it made the legal case comprehensible once you got to it. But this world was just a really amazing world. And one of the things that the Austrian prosecutor in the case said, Gottfried Thoman, who was forced to defend Austria's claims to these paintings, he said that he took a look at Maria on film and video and in conferences 
and listened to her talk and thought, oh my God, I have to come up against this. Because Maria and her generation spoke the Italianate Viennese of the empire with lots of little flourishes and French words and kiss de hand and very Baroque, very musical, not the kind of German you're used to hearing. And it was the kind of German he heard when he was a small child. And he thought, oh my God, I don't have a Maria. I just have the burden of history. And I think that is a wonderful way to conclude our chat. Anne-Marie O'Connor, thank you very much for joining us in the pod. Good luck with your new book. Just remind us again of the title and the publisher. The book is The Lady in Gold by Anne-Marie O'Connor, Alfred A. Knopf, in February 7th, 2012. Very exciting. Coming soon to a bookstore near you, podsters. Thanks, Anne-Marie.